because honestly, I think so much about when I first moved to LA and when I didn't have any money and I'm working all these jobs and I was struggling to one day be like, how cool would it be to perform at a big stage? And now I'm doing all those things and, and I feel ready for it. And I'm grateful for it every time, every time I'm grateful for it. everyone you are listening to episode 200 of the assyrian podcast i'm your co-host sarah and if you know me at all you know i love anything and everything entertainment related as someone who was essentially raised by tv please don't come at me my parents were very busy i am my happiest talking to people about all things comedy and i'm so thankful for this podcast as a way to do that with assyrian artists today you'll hear comedian paul Elia chat about his experience in the entertainment industry and the full circle moment of his upcoming special taking place at the Detroit House of Comedy on October 13th through 14th. Paul is an actor, comedian, writer, and all-around jack-of-all-trades, and just such a lovely person to talk to, um, as you'll hear in this episode. Be sure to follow him on socials at Paul Elia Comedy. Now, without further ado, Paul Elia. Thanks so much, Paul, for joining me uh, while you're on tour. Are you back in Detroit right now for for your special? I'm in, I'm in Miami right now. Oh, no way. Yeah, I'm doing shows here. I got some shows. So this is the last stop before I film the special next week. Okay, cool. How are you feeling? I feel ready. I feel ready, yeah. Um, can you tell me a little bit about Detroit and Detroit Player? Because I know you're from there, but the show is kind of about your upbringing, I'm assuming? or Yeah, a lot of it is about my upbringing, my mom working at a liquor store, navigating entertainment, and hustling to make it work. So essentially, these are all things that have always been a part of me. And I think as an artist, trying to find out how to articulate it in a artistic way, in a funny way, in a story is really the magic trick. So it took a long time and I feel very ready to share this. Nice, so tell me a little bit about your parents. They both migrated from Iraq, right? Yeah, both my parents came from Iraq in the 80s and they went from Iraq and then a lot of uh, Assyrians went to San Diego. And you know, the Assyrians in San Diego, a lot of them are like, we're Chaldean. That's not even the same thing. So there was a lot of like divide, which I didn't really understand, honestly, until like fairly recently. But yeah, honestly, it's something that I like, I think about a lot, you know, and I was never really told I was Assyrian growing up. It was always like, you're Chaldean. This is the language you speak, Chaldean. The church you go to, Chaldean. And then the more research I did, I'm just like, wait, uh, I don't know if this is 100% true. This doesn't seem right. There's, I think, some missing details here. But yeah, when did you start getting into stand-up? I'm curious, like how young were you? I was in 2011. That was the first time I ever did stand up. That was in Detroit. 
and I did it at the MGM Casino. It was in front of two thousand people. Oh my and god! Met, that was your yeah. first time in front of two thousand people. Yeah. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot. Most people I know will start in front of like comedians and it's usually like an open mic somewhere small and like dark. And, you know, it's like 20 people max. So that's impressive. 2000 people. Yeah, I was working on a TV show at the time. I was working as a stand in a stand in essentially when the main actors are show up to set they'll rehearse the scene and then they'll go into hair and makeup and while they're in hair and makeup the stand-in someone who looks like the actor will step in and essentially reenact the scene and that's for camera and lighting so then when the actor does come it just makes a smoother day so i was doing this as my first job first professional job and one of the actors on set was also a comedian his name's sean majumder he's a very very funny comic from canada and he was like, I want to put together an event in Detroit. I'm going to do some stand-up. So I told him, dude, I do stand-up. And then he's like, oh, well, you should do some time. So I was just trying to build an act for those two weeks. And when I went on stage, that was the first time I ever did stand-up. And it was bad. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you an example. It was so bad that it was, it was a room full of people. And I would like say a punchline, and then I can hear someone all the way in the back, like, man, what? Just ever so faintly, just conversations from the back of the room. And you're like, man, I got to keep doing this. Oh, I stopped. I stopped for a <laughs> while. So you started mainly as an actor. You 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 wanted to go into acting, essentially. Yeah. And then stand-up was kind of like um, like one of the side roads that you took. Yeah. Okay, cool. I definitely felt defeated and it's like, wow, this is a lot harder than what I thought, but I always had the mentality of like, I'm going to jump in and do something, even though I don't know what it is, which is a good thing and a bad thing. So I didn't do stand up, and then I moved to Los Angeles pretty much two weeks after that show. It was like the show was over. We did this big sign off event and I couldn't do anything else other than acting. And I told that to my mom. They didn't understand, but I told them I was going anyway. And we negotiated some sort of deal where I was like, I'm going to live in California for six months. We'll see how it goes. And then we'll have a reassessment period. But I really feel like I do have a opportunity to have a career in this business. So my parents let me go. And then when I was in Los Angeles, I was working a bit like I got into a play. And the play that I did was directed by a pretty well-known director at the time. And uh, it was written by a very successful writer. So I would tell my mom, like, mom, look at these people that are on this project. These are like legit people. Then I started working on short films and I got a, a role on like this larger film that ended up getting on Lifetime. And then so I started to get some things to prove my case of being like, hey, I can, I can do this. And then through doing that, there was like obviously a lot of like downtime where it's like you do a play, you're working on the play. Then after the play's over, nothing for four weeks. And then for those four weeks, I was just going to the, I would wake up, go to the gym. And then I would go see a show or a live show or try to network. And then I would go home and watch movies. And it's like, that was my life. 
it, 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 and it didn't seem fulfilling enough. So I had to fill it up with something creative. So that's when I went back and started doing stand-up. That's cool. So how old were you when you moved out to LA? This is in 2011. I was 23. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then how was it like essentially trying to convince your immigrant parents that you're going to choose this lifestyle essentially and like try it out for six months? And because I, I can, I can only imagine how my parents would react and ha have reacted to us, you know, being like, hey, this is actually what I want to pursue. I'm just curious how your parents were with you. A lot of resistance. Sure. Definitely a lot of resistance. I mean, they were, their mentality is make money. You know, which is honestly why, like, even, like, my parents didn't teach me Arabic. They didn't really teach me Sudith. These languages that are a part of them, like our culture and heritage and things like that. Honestly, it wasn't really taught to me enough. I feel like there's obviously foods and culture that were that was shared with me and there was a lot that was missing and i think that was filled with go to school make money be a doctor lawyer a job that makes a lot of money be something respectable we don't want you working at a liquor store we don't want you working at a gas station we don't want you working for anybody we want you to be your own boss so like that was like the main goal so for me to basically be like forget all that I'm going to do work in entertainment in this field that's so uh, risky and there's such a high risk of not making money. That's what they were the most afraid of. They were just like, oh, my God, my son is going to be a waiter. Oh, my God, my son is going to do valet. He's going to which I did all those things. Did you? I was going to say, did you do all those jobs? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God, I did. I, I worked a lot of jobs. You know, I worked a lot of jobs to make it work. So, which is why this is such a full circle moment. And it's like, you know, now a Detroit player is coming back to Detroit to film this comedy special. And this is sort of my uh, thank you to my parents for letting me pursue this. Because honestly, like, I think middle, especially Syrian parents, they can like hang guilt over us. And that will make us do whatever they want. Like my mom would basically cry or my, and my dad would be like in such deep emotion. And that would just make any child be like, well, I have to do what they say, or they're just going to be hurt forever. Right. Like I can't kill my parents with this guilt. <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to kill my family with the guilt of me being in a play. It's really funny how these things, these like projects are, um, so influential on their lives you know mm -hmm. you're just trying to live your life you're trying to do your thing and um you know the the way that it affects them it's just um it's, it's always been interesting to me my, my mom is like that but what's something that you would tell younger paul now for this homecoming he, this 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 special what's something that you would tell younger paul after that show at mgm that you know didn't go so well in front of two thousand people be patient that's always been my problem. I'm very impatient. And I think I started to learn patience through practicing, practicing it in other areas. As example, I would cook and I'd make sure the stove is on high 
I would put the food in before the butter is fully evaporated. I would not wash the food. I would constantly check to lid to make sure that it's the food is ready. And then when I would see the food and it was subpar, I would be confused. And then I'm realizing more and more, there's some patience that goes with all your movements, everything that you do. So I started to really apply patience. And then with my career, I really wanted to microwave my career. I wanted it to be ready fast. And a lot of it was because I just wanted my parents to be proud sooner. I wanted people around me to, re to respect me more sooner. And I was so uncomfortable with feeling unready. So it's, it definitely made things harder for me. And it also made me who I am. So in a lot of ways, I'm very grateful for my impatience. And also at the same time, I do think I needed to apply it. Uh, I should have applied it more. And then I do want to know who was your like favorite comedian or comedian you looked up to either prior to going into stand up or even currently. You know, one of my favorite comedians, I love this man so much. His name is Brody Stevens. Have you heard of this guy? Mm -mm. This guy, Brody Stevens, he was like one of the first comics I really, well, that's not true. He's one of them. I would say aside from Frank Caliendo, aside from Pablo Francisco, you know, and Bruce Bruce and Mike Epps and Chris Rock and Chappelle. Of course. And what I loved about them the most were their, uh, a lot of it is why I love Frank Caliendo and Paolo Francisco were their characters. They did yeah, such Frank hilarious Caliendo characters. Frank Caliendo was like mad TV. I'm so sorry to cut you off. Frank yeah, Caliendo yeah. was mad TV before, right? I think so. I think it was Mad TV. He was like, he would do these John Madden impressions and his John Madden impression was just so funny. And I related to that so much because when I was a kid in Detroit, I would get picked on a lot and I get beat up all the time. And I would not leave the house because I would always get into fights and lose, obviously. And the way that I would get people to not fight me is if I would do impressions of other people. So a lot of bullies would be like, hey, do an impression of James. And then I'd do an impression of James, and then they'd be like, all right, Paul's cool. So impressions of being funny helped me from, prevented me from being bullied. So I would watch other people do impressions, people like Frank Caliano, Paolo Francisco, and I'm like, oh my God, these people are just like me. Are they doing this because someone's trying to beat their ass? Who's trying to fight them? <laughs> I, I, I just assume that's why everybody's doing impressions. Do you feel like, um, I wanted to go back to this actually, you said you kind of wanted to like microwave your career in a sense. Yeah. Like speed it up. Do you feel like TikTok kind of allows people to do that? I think TikTok allows people to microwave their fame. Okay. But at the end of the day, you can't run away from skill. You can make it, you can make it to the NBA finals. And if you don't perform well, everybody in that stadium, everyone watching at home will know. So I'm like at the point in my career where I can perform in front of Madison Square Garden 
and I'm comfortable and I'm ready. And I'm like, I put enough work to where I'm like, I accepted that I am ready to perform in front of this crowd. You know, like I, like we were in Bend, Oregon, me and Matt Rife, 6,500 people. And I was like, dude, this is actually easier than performing in front of 300 people. Like, I felt like a wrestler. It was just like, you go to one side of the stage, raise your hands, they go crazy. I walked to the other side of the stage, took my time, raised my hands up, and then they go crazy again. So I'm like, oh man, this is, I'm like a maestro. And I wasn't really thinking, I hope I do well. I hope they find me funny. I'm like, I know these jokes are funny. I've been doing them for years. And sure enough, I would do them in a room full of mostly white people. And then I would say my parents are from Iraq and talk about my family being from Iraq and hear huge laughs from people who necessarily don't really have that experience. So I'm like, wow, the fact that I'm able to share my experience with people from a different culture and get them to laugh and get them to understand and get them to DM me saying, wow, that was really cool. I have a friend <laughs> who's Jordanian. I think you said Assyrian, Jordanian. Are you guys the same? <laughs> you guys have the same ending. You're the same ending. You said you were Assyrian. Uh, so you're from Syria, right? Like my heart goes yeah. out to you guys. Yeah. Yeah, I would tell people, they're like, how come there's no, uh, you say you're Assyrian, how come there's no country? And I was like, well, we sort of use Iraq as our Airbnb. You know, we've been there for a while. Uh-huh. So, you know, and then like funny ways to explain our history, you know? Yeah. I like that. It's it's kind of like, um, it's a better, not a, I shouldn't say a better way. There is... There are multiple ways of teaching people where you're from and who you are and who your people are. And comedy seems like it's your way, like through anecdotal comedy, through stand-up. Yeah. And then um, you also started the Low Key Company, which is essentially a company that it's supposed to, like, it kind of pays comics up front, right, for their work? Yeah, the Low Key Company is the umbrella under all my projects, which are mainly the Low Key Comedy Show which I co-created with myself and Matt Rife, and a few other projects are in development right now. It's my production company. How did you, how did this idea come about where you're like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna start this company and just get it off the ground. And like, what, what brought you to that instead of just, you know, continuing on your own path, doing stand up, like taking auditions, like, why were you like, I'm gonna start this company and, you know, start a collective essentially. Honestly, the Middle Eastern in me, it's like, <laughs> I got to own my own business, player, <laughs> you know? So also in how entertainment works now, you can't just do one thing. You can't just be a comedian. You have to be a writer. You have to act. You have to shoot your sketches. You have to know how to edit. So what is asked of an artist is actually, we're being asked to wear multiple hats. And... I was always naturally wearing multiple hats. I was like, if no one wants to cast me in their film, I'm gonna make my own film, which is what I did. In 2014, I produced my own feature film with my buddy, Dan Ringy, who's directing Detroit Player. We raised over $220,000, shot a feature length film that I starred in. And I was like, that was my first starring role in a real feature film. And it was, I had to do it on my own. Which film was that? Was that the the thriller? The yeah, it was called Dirty. 
Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was already naturally wearing multiple hats and comfortable wearing multiple hats. I would basically fund my own projects, hire all these people, write my own project just so I can act in it. I would do Vine videos and I'm like writing Vine videos, shooting Vine videos for free when Vine was a thing, growing the channel so it can grow my channel. I would write for other people because they would put me in their thing. So I was always trying to play multiple, I was playing multiple positions. So I'm comfortable doing that and I didn't have any problem with that. So I think when the opportunity came to start my own production company, I was like low key company. And a lot of, you know, what inspired the low key company was the low key comedy show. So there was something about that. And I was like, well, I kind of have my own business right now. I need a loan out company. I'm starting to make more money. All this, like, instead of people paying me through me personally, I was like, I think I need a loan out a business. I'm at that point in my career. Thank you, God, alhamdulillah, I'm at this point. So I was like, let me start the low key company. That's really cool. So under the low key company, you have multiple projects going on. Yeah. You've got um, how many podcasts? I've I've listened to two of them so far. Two, yeah, yeah. They're both like on hold right now, but I have two podcasts. One's called Translationship that I do with me and my girlfriend. Yeah. And another one is Low-Key Immigrants with Dave Merhesh. Okay. And then if you don't mind me asking about those two, first the one, Translationship with your partner. Um, what's it like, first of all, working on a creative project with your significant other just because <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like things can get kind of messy there sometimes yeah well it's hilarious like her and i would joke around i'm like babe we can never break up because we got a podcast together <laughs> so this is this is our till death do us part nice <laughs> you locked her in oh uh, yeah we yeah we locked her in one one clip at a time how did you two meet we met on instagram Oh, we met on Instagram. Yeah, she liked five of my videos in a row, the, and the 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 ultimate um, you know interest yeah. indicator. Oh, that is the new you up when you like five photos in a row at three in the morning during you up hours. You know. Yeah. Enough said. You know, um, my, my buddy Rami Youssef makes a great point. He said this in his first special. He goes, what women and men really should do is they should save that post and then like it in the morning at a reasonable time, mm. Smart. You know, which mm -hmm. I agree with. And she obviously decided not to do that. So uh, we started to talk I love and it. then, yeah. I, I love a <laughs> woman. Yeah, confident. I mean, if you ask her, she'll obviously tell you a different story. <laughs> she goes first of all it's not five it was three it was three and i like it because i felt bad i'm like oh no he's trying so hard <laughs> and i'm like babe just say you thought i was fine come on player so your podcast with her is called translationship because you guys are uh from different places right just essentially different ethnicities getting together and talking about you know that is that kind of like the, the main spiel of it? Yeah, what inspired it was the words she would use to say certain things and like the way that I would say certain things, you know? Like I taught her Khalil mm -hmm. 
and she didn't understand what it meant. And then I, you know, explained to her, I'm like, it means I eat your heart. And then she was like, it feels so aggressive. You know, you eat my heart. It means it's like, I am a dead. <laughs> Are you like a walking dead zombie? I you love know? that because our terms of endearment are really intense and scary sometimes. Yeah. And it's also like, you know, and, and, and it makes sense as to like how much our parents love us. They love us to such extremities because they express their love. And I think so, it's a subconscious thing. It's like when you tell somebody so casually, I love you so much, I would like to eat your organs. It's like, oh, it, it has this unhealthy level of concern for their well-being sometimes, I think. <laughs> I love the intensity. I'm not going to lie. It's a very intense language. There's no lukewarm phrases with us. Like they really are all just like intense. Like I kill myself for you kind of thing. Actually, <laughs> you know, um, you played a role on Rami, Rami Yusuf's, Rami Yusuf's show on Hulu, and they called you the LeBron James of prayer, I think it was. Um, first of all, that was hilarious. Uh, second of all, how fun was it being on that show? It was, it was great. And I would say what is so hilarious is that Assyrians will hit me up. They'll be like, Paul, Yusuf, this is an Assyrian last name. Why don't you tell Rami to say he is Assyrian? <laughs> he's Egyptian, no? Yeah, I'm like, he's Egyptian. And they're like, yeah, but he can still say. I feel like Yusuf is like, I don't know, Smith in the Middle East. Yeah. Yusuf like, is definitely a Smith. Yeah. Because like I know Iraqis that are last name Yusuf. I know some Jordanians last name Yusuf. Yeah. Um, it was it was fantastic. You know, Rami, uh, you know, as I mentioned to him earlier, Rami is a real dear friend. And when I came to LA, it took some time for me to find my people. It took some time for me to find people who are like-minded. And by like-minded, even though him and I you know, practice different religions and we both believe in God. And I feel like in Los Angeles, I was having a hard time being around people who had similar ideologies as me. And, you know, even before we eat, we would all pray together. Before we work, we would pray together. And we really bonded over our, uh, submission and love for God. So working on that show was really rewarding because I felt like I was doing something that was also in line with my goals and also with people that I love. And it was just so, I was so grateful for that opportunity, you know, and like Rami, he, you know, I had still had to audition for the part. I put in a tape for it. And Rami even said it, he goes, dude, I, I wrote this role with you in mind, which not a lot of people do that, you know, and that role has helped me in my career. And Rami has continued to, you know, reach out and look out for me in my career. And honestly, I would not be where I am if it wasn't for Rami. And I tell him that all the time, you know, and I think it's important to say that. And there's no, sometimes people have an ego about like, 
oh, who is bringing me up? Who is doing this? I'm like, me? I'm like, bro, this is my brother. I would do the same for him if I was in that position. And he's, you know, thank God, God has put him in that position. And then he's able to look out for me. I'm also working with him on some other projects. So I'm just like so grateful, honestly, for his friendship and to be working on that show. That's really cool. Is that how you met Dave Midhage or is uh, did you guys meet prior to that? Is I met Dave, Dave through doing stand-up. Oh, okay. I met him in New York. I met him in New York. My man's, wait, can I curse on this podcast? Go for it. This motherfucker. <laughs> this motherfucker is wearing purple and black square pants <laughs> that were so ridiculous. And I remember when I first met him, I was just like, I can't believe this guy is dressed so, I thought he was a rapper. Cause he Naturally. was wearing, yeah, he was wearing, oh my God. He was wearing SoundCloud rapper clothes. So I was, and then also I saw him on stage and he had no material. He was just riffing with the crowd. And I was just like blown away because I was in a lot of ways afraid to veer off from my set and riff. And then the times where I would do that, where I'm forced to do that, it would be the funniest part of my set where I'm like open and just go off script and just riff. And then I would see Dave do it with so much ease. And I was like, wow, this guy man's uh, brilliant. This guy has no fear in his heart. And we just became really good friends. And it was me, him, Mo Almer. We we're hanging out till like four in the morning in New York. And Dave and I have been close friends ever since. That's really cool. You guys all like travel and do comedy together, right? Yeah. There was a podcast actually that I, okay, so I did research naturally. Thank you. Hi, before, hi research. Before, before I met you. Um, so I listened to a lot of your podcasts with Dave and there's one with Natalie Ocar and you guys had actually gone to Lebanon all together. Yeah. So you guys are like traveling internationally and doing stand-up. What's that like? Man, God is good. It's just so great. It's so great. Because honestly, I think so much about when I first moved to LA and when I didn't have any money and I'm working all these jobs and I was struggling to one day be like, how cool would it be to perform at a big stage? And now I'm doing all those things. And, and I feel ready for it. And I'm grateful for it every time. Every time, I'm grateful for it. Also, I have game time focus, you know? Like, I'm not, like, in a complete, whimsical, mesmerized look all the time, you know? But it's, like, I'm able to take a moment where I, like, breathe in and breathe out. All right, yeah, game time focus. <laughs> game time focus is essentially, like, you know, like, I'm, I'm sure you, like, you have interviewed and spoken to some of the most prominent people in our culture. You know, and like you've, uh, well, uh, the thing is, this is audio, so people aren't going to see your face. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, you know, uh, you know, I've also listened to several episodes of the podcast, and it's like you've had very intellectual conversations, deep conversations about history and culture with some of the most prominent people in our culture, at least the ones that are able to speak about who we are. And I'm sure there's a point where you're like, wow. Thank you, God. Wow, I get to have these conversations and listen to these people and learn from these people and carry some of the, this experience to my own life. So my way of, of being fulfilled and 
is I would just feel it for a brief moment. And I'm like, and I'll say a prayer. I'm like, thank you, God, for this moment. And then I'm like, oh, back on game time vibes. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about you have um, you have your show Mentor that's out on Amazon Prime. And I also watched, by the way. <laughs> that was one of my first projects. Did you write your own part? Like, was it like you wrote your part and then your, so you were uh, in Mentor, you were involved with Jason Stewart, who's another yeah. comedian. And then Alexandra Paul, who was on Baywatch. Yeah. Um, how did you guys even get involved with each other? I'm I'm so curious. And then like, how did this come about? Uh, a lot of it was like what I said earlier, like I had to write my own parts because I just wanted to act. And I met Jason through comedy. And Jason Stewart, maybe a lot of people are unfamiliar with him. He's been doing comedy for a long time. And when I saw him go up for the first time, I was like, this guy's a master. This guy's crowd work, his speed is so quick, so fast. I mean, his style of comedy is so unique. And I was just really impressed by it. And so I was like, dude, you know, we started to like talk and discuss the, like creating projects. And then we had this idea and we wrote it together. We raised money. I think we raised around $30,000. And I got to star in this project. And again, like I'm very grateful for this project because this project was yet another thing where I'm like, I, pro I proved that I can write and create with another person. Obviously, Jason, you know, when we started working, he had his own ideas of what he wanted to make. And I had my own ideas of what I wanted to make. So it also taught me how to be a collaborator. So it was very, very helpful. And honestly, like everything I learned in Mentor helped me for my next project. So I was very grateful for, for that. Were you essential? It's it's very um clear that it's like written by two comedians. Were you writing just for yourself and then he's writing for himself? Yeah, like like I, I basically had a lot of like story threads, like the protein bar. I was like, there's something interesting about the protein bar because it's something that is supposed to be a meal replacement and it's supposed to be something that people don't want to eat because it's like I really want to eat more food, but it's essentially like a little dose of something to like, and, and it's used as a treat. It's used as a, I did a good job. Here's this protein bar. So I wanted to thread that needle throughout the whole story of like, when does Jason receive the protein bar? When he does something and he feels like a hero, he should be like, I need a protein bar. That's when he gets his protein bar. So I would think very heady about certain things and threading the story and how everything works. And also Alexandra Paul, her character, which is this unapologetic, no hold no, nothing back sort of person. And I feel like Jason, in a lot of ways, he was really focused on like the funny and the comedy and the I'm gay, I'm Jewish, I'm exhausted sort of vibe. And like, you know, he put a lot of like his flavor on, on top of that. So yeah, in a lot of ways he wrote his own thing. And then in terms of story, I was like, you know, very focused on crafting and certain things. And he would obviously listen and be like, oh, that's a good idea too. I would pitch him on a line. He would be like, I don't like that line. He would pitch me on lines. I'm like, I don't like that line. So in a lot of ways we were able to pitch each other and also have the freedom to say, hi, thank you so much for pitching me this joke. I'm gonna respectfully decline, but thank you for your offers for me saying this joke. Is that exactly how you would say it? 
Honestly, <laughs> when you're in a writer's room and someone will like pitch an idea, there's a way to, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. Like oh, yeah. I've been, like I've been in rooms where like we're pitching jokes and someone would say, well, what if you say this? And then I would say, huh, that's really interesting. I was actually thinking of another direction, but I'm going to keep that in mind because maybe that could be useful for something for another piece. As opposed to saying, no, that's dumb. Like my family, like I would like the way they talk about things, like even when I would like doing stand up, I would like, or yeah, like I would pitch them a, a, a stand up premise. Like I'm on the phone with my brother and my brother's like, so what's going on? I'm like, oh man, I'm just writing. He goes, what are you writing? I'm like, oh, I thought of this joke where I'm going to talk about this. And then he'd be like, yeah, that's stupid. <laughs> and then I'm like, okay, so that's, so your official review of my joke is that it's stupid. You're a neurosurgeon. Straightforward, to the point. You're stupid. No, it's stupid. So I'm just like, you know, you have to know how to like communicate. It, it, but basically, I was never really taught how to communicate this way. This is all new. So the thing is, I would like communicate this way, like, and even some of my friends back home, like they would say something and I would say, well, like they would say, oh, bro, John the other day said the dumbest thing, bro. So stupid. And then I would say, well, is it stupid or is it something that you may not really fully understand right now, which is why you're having this resistance? And then they will be like, dude, when did you become a Democrat? <laughs> which is your favorite of these traits? Because you're saying you do all of these different things. You're writing. You are you are on Conan as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Which has been, if you have a favorite of the trades, do you enjoy writing more? Do you enjoy acting? Do you enjoy the stand-up more nowadays? It fluctuates. Right now, I'm all in on stand-up. And when I'm done with this project, when I need to act, I'm ready to go. I I love all of it and it's hard it's hard to pick one honestly i'm like a it like depends on my mood it depends on my mood <laughs> sometimes i'm like i want to act and then sometimes i'm like i like writing hi yeah it just depends so right now it's stand up yeah right now detroit player but also it's like at detroit player i'm also a producer on the project so it's like like literally before i hopped on a call with you i need to find out how i can get 200 lanyards print printed and made for the show that's next week because the person just dropped out. Oh, so is that what a producer does? Yeah, I mean, it handles a lot of logistical tasks. Oh, fun. A lot of producers will handle logistical tasks, like let's go to the venue, let's figure out this thing, let's make sure camera department knows what they're doing, let's have someone build the schedule, let's make sure we have all the deliverables, let's make sure the hard drives are compatible with whatever software let's make sure they're uh they're ssd cards and so a lot of technical stuff and putting everything together sort of vibes and i'm doing that as well in addition to performing and writing this project that's a lot how do you handle all of that uh god he's like i got the lanyards for you bro don't, straight up don't, don't even worry about them straight up <laughs> i got a guy <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. That's great. And then how do people, how can people watch this special? Do you have to be there in person or? If you are listening to this podcast mm -hmm. and you want to come to the show, it is uh, October 13th and 14th mm -hmm. in Detroit. 
So <laughs> if you're listening, Detroit, October 13th, 14th, Detroit House of Comedy, or if you are following me on social media, I'm going to release this project independently on mintcomedy.com. If you want to watch the special, you, you can subscribe for Mint Comedy. It is $9.99, and you get to watch Detroit Player, and also you get three months of Mint Comedy for free. Very cool. So in addition to watching my special, you can watch a bunch of shows for free, and they have some of the biggest comedians on the planet on that platform. So you can watch that as well. And I, the reason why I decided to release it this way is because I want to own my, my story. I mean, I could have really pressed and pushed to put this on a streaming platform and it was very possible. I'm starting to get a lot of people paying attention to me. I'm starting to get a lot of heat around what I'm doing and I can, with a very straight face, go up to some of the biggest streamers in the world and be like, Hey, here's this project. And they'll consider it and they'll meet with me. Also the executive producers involved, you know, Matt Reif, one of my dearest friends and the biggest comedian on the planet right now, Bassam Yusuf, one of the biggest comedians in the Arab world right now are all behind this project. And that is what a lot of streamers and a lot of these big companies, what they love to see, they'd see, Oh, let's see who's behind it. What kind of power is behind this? So with all that said, I want to own my story. I don't want to give up ownership. That's why I'm putting this out independently. That's really cool. How did you get, I didn't ask you before, how did you get involved with Matt Reif? Matt Reif is like also um, a, like a TikToker comedian, kind of started that way. Well, I'll say this, his special is, is going to be dropping soon. His Netflix special, I also produced that. Oh, and cool. It, yeah, it's all uh material he is a brilliant comedian i mean he posts crowd work because it's like this is disposable content and no one does crowd work as good as him he is i think one of the best in the game right now and he's only 28 years old and he's able to just fire shit off immediately i mean him and i we're you know if you look at my instagram page there's a lot of videos of him and i together doing crowd work he's just brilliant he's brilliant and we yeah, he met has you cracking up most of the time oh my god he kills me he kills me i laugh so hard me and matt together we just literally will just laugh for hours and a lot of it is you know we, i met him when he was 16 and i was was he 16 or he was like 16 or 17 and i was 23 and yeah i met him at the laugh factory and we met and we just became friends and then when he started to, when he got on Wild and Out and he started a tour, he brought me with him on tour and I would open for him on the road. And then eventually we started Low-Key Low Upset, which was the original name for Low-Key Comedy Show. We started Low-Key Upset at the Comedy Store and we started that show because him and I both made some irresponsible purchases and bought Jeep Wranglers that we couldn't afford. Oh. We wanted to be Jeep bros. And we didn't have enough money so we got these jeeps and we started doing shows at the comedy store to help pay for it eventually we did it and the show was one of the hottest shows in la and him and i've been just best friends honestly ever since we first met we became really good friends so that's a long time long time like 12 years that's interesting yeah he's great yeah i i love matt matt's honestly like one of my closest friends and 
you know, he's he's also someone who hasn't forgotten who he is. Like he has all this success, he's still the same dude. You know, God is good. God is protecting him and keeping him grounded. Actually, Rami Youssef asked you an interesting question when you and Dave interviewed him on your podcast. He asked mm -hmm. you, are there some people that you were cool with before that you kind of have to protect yourself from since going on this journey? Of course. You want to name them? Put <laughs> <laughs> it right out there. I start to name all my uncles. <laughs> yeah, this game is, you know, uh, my one thing that I realized is how important it is to protect your energy. So when I feel like my energy is being compromised, I have to protect it. I only want to be around people that want to spread light. And people reveal themselves pretty openly if you pay attention. And I'm paying attention. I'm very vigilant. At least I'm trying to be. So how do you how do you do that? How do you protect yourself from people? Like, let's say when you go back to Detroit and everybody's all over you. Or uh, I don't know. I, I doubt you stay. Do you stay with your parents when you go back to Detroit? Yeah, I'm not allowed to stay anywhere else. Got you. Yeah, no, that makes sense. How does that work then? People coming over constantly like, Paul, David Habibi. <laughs> yeah, but it's all love. It's yeah. all love. Like that right there, that's all love. I like that. I, I actually want that. It's really just like people that are just like, you know, that I could tell want to use me for something. You know, like people that will hit me up and they'll be like, hey, man, can you get me in touch with Matt? Hey, can you do this? Hey, man, can you do this thing for me for free? Hey, bro, you want to go do this thing? And I'm just like, I'm just able to say, no, thank you. I appreciate it. I'm able to say, thank you so much for your offers. Um, I would like to respectfully decline. <laughs> and I want to wish you luck on your endeavors. Is that hard for you? Or was that ever hard for you? Because I feel like a lot of people feel a sense of obligation. Um, and then they're like, well, I have to do this for so-and-so, or I have to do it for this organization. Setting these boundaries, is it is it difficult for you? Not anymore. I think for a while, I just wanted people to like me. So I was really obsessed with having everybody like me. And if anyone didn't like me, it would be a problem. And now I'm very comfortable with saying exactly how I feel. And if someone doesn't like it, or if it hurts someone, it's okay because I know I'm being authentic. Because at the end of the day, that's all we can really strive to be. And it's fine. Like there's some people that they'll have comments on me even saying I'm a Syrian. A lot of people in the Chaldean community are like, why are you saying that? And I'm like, because that's what I am. And I'm not trying to just appease that. I'm like, I just want to do what's right for me and what seems to make the most sense for me. I was honestly nervous to say, and I, I know I know, I mentioned this up top in the beginning of the podcast, because this is something that honestly weighs very heavy on my heart. Because, you know, the community in Detroit is very unique compared to the community in Chicago, compared to the community in uh, San Francisco and San Jose you know, where the most Assyrians I would say are. 
And it's like the ones in Detroit are just sort of like, yo, bro, we don't really have much to do with the Assyrian people. And honestly, I think that is also shrinking because more and more Chaldeans are starting to at least acknowledge their heritage. And for a while, I was like, I was going to post a video. I don't know if you saw the video. I did a video where I described what Chaldeans are. I was like, Chaldeans are Catholic Assyrians from Iraq. I made this video and it started to go crazy on the internet, but I was nervous to post it. And I was like, I don't want to like cause any issues, but I was like, no, nah, man, I want to cause issues. I was like, I want to hold a mirror and be like, what the fuck is this? Someone explain this to me. And even my own family, my own family's like, why are you doing that? Why are you posting these videos? Why are you saying these things? I legit feel like if you have a point and you believe it, say it. Zero selfish reasons. There's some people that want to spread like bullshit. That's something else. And honestly, they have the freedom to do that. And then people have the freedom and wherewithal to listen to it, digest it, and make their own opinion. So I believe in what I'm saying. And if people like it, great. If people don't like it, that's also great, which is why I'm so excited to film my special because in my special, I 100% stand behind everything that I'm saying. There is zero bullshit in what I'm putting out right now. And that's how, you know, God willing, I hope to keep everything that I do. Everything that I do is 100% real zero bullshit vibes. I love that. I can tell actually through your comedy, but I love it. And I can't wait for people to see you in Detroit playa. Awesome. But those are basically all my questions. Uh, wow, what a time. I know, aside from one side question, um, just for you, does Dave know he looks like Stanford from Sex in the City? <laughs> we should, I'm gonna tell him that. You should, what? yeah. I look like who? Yeah, yeah. What's going like on it. in the city? He looks like Stanford from Sex in the City to me. Yeah, I, I, I thought. I thought Dave. I, I thought Dave looks like a tired egg. <laughs> but that's you. I can see that. I, I can see that. But yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all of your work, listening to the upcoming podcasts because I wow. I think you're very funny. Um, and yeah, keep doing what you're doing. You know, what, likewise, I I love the work you're doing. And I don't know what episode y'all are on in this Assyrian podcast. I think y'all have recorded over 300. You're going to be either 200 or 201, depending on when I can get you in. Wow. I'm, I'm, honored, <laughs> to be a, I'm honored to be a part of this podcast. And thank you for having me. We're honored to have you. Thanks so much, Paul. And then can I say your last name? Is it Ilya or Elia? I should have asked you this before. Ilya. 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 Paul Elia, how many times do people mess that up on you? I mess it up. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then it works. It's all good. It works. We're chilling. It's all love. Thank you so much, Paul. You have um, a good rest of your day and kill it in your special. Thank you so you much. got this. I'll see y'all. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out Paul Elia on social media so you can stay updated on tour dates and where to watch his material. If you're not in Detroit for his upcoming special, you can still watch it on mintcomedy.com. That's M-I-N-T comedy.com. This episode is brought to you by all of us here at the Assyrian Podcast. To support, check out our site to purchase some Assyrian Podcast swag today. Thanks.